Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have Dr. Andrew Mikda back on the show, and he's going to give us another update on what's taking place with the Ukraine, Russia, and then later in the talk we'll talk about Russia's involvement in Syria, since that has been a very hot topic in the last couple of days. So first of all, thank you so much for coming back on the show, Dr. Mikda. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for our listeners that might not have listened to the series that we've done on Russia, the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, Dr. Mikta is a professor now at the U.S. Naval War College, and he's also an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in the Europe program. And just as a little disclaimer, his views expressed um, are not uh, necessarily the views of the U.S. Naval War College and or the official policy or positions of the Department of the Navy and the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. So these are explicitly Dr. Mika's views. So we just want to get that out in the public before we start our discussion. Okay, thank you, sir, Chelsea. Thank you. So why don't you just start off with providing us with an update of the developments between Russia and the Ukraine? Well, we just had a meeting uh, of the Normandy Four, France uh, and Germany, Russia and Ukraine. Um, and essentially, um, the, the, the so-called framework for negotiating the future of Ukraine uh, have uh, agreed on a couple of steps that I think are quite significant here. As you know, um, we've had the simmering conflict after the last Minsk agreement, uh, during which uh, even though the ceasefire would generally hold, there was uh, kind of intermittent uh, firing, shelling, uh, casualties continue to to accumulate, but but not like a major breakthrough campaign that we saw at the Baltica and other places. Um, the most important deliverables are now is that um, uh, on the one hand, um, Poroshenko has committed uh, his government to passing a bill uh, that will grant a uh, kind of sp- special federalized status to uh, the regions that are being contested. Um, and what that means, and I, the reason I consider this to be very significant, is that, uh, in effect, Putin is getting in Ukraine uh, an absolutely fundamental concession. Um, there is nothing strange about any country that is multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual um, when it decides to federalize or decentralize the government or grant special rights. I mean, we see this in Western Europe. Uh, you know, we see this in Francophone Canada and other places. But there is something very disturbing when these concessions are extracted, uh, in effect, under the barrel of a gun. Um, Putin has done two things in Ukraine, and the Normandy process seems to be uh, on the verge of legitimizing it, which means that the West will uh, underwrite these uh, these deals between Russia and Ukraine um, in order to freeze the conflict and try to get some sort of a long-term settlement. What he has achieved is uh, using the ethnic criterion 
uh, for intervening in another country's affairs, uh, something that uh, should have never been accepted, tolerated, or recognized in any shape or form, and it has never been, you know, officially acknowledged, but the negotiation process sends a very different message. Putin has used the argument of an ethnic Russian diaspora in Ukraine, or Russian-speaking diaspora in Ukraine, as well as in other places, uh, in order to make direct territorial claims uh, on a neighboring state. And now he is in the process of, in effect, forcing a constitutional change. Uh, on that country that that has been subjected to Russian aggression. So uh, we're seeing, unfortunately, if I were to take the longer term uh, of Ukraine's prospects, we're seeing a kind of two-track development. On the the one hand, from the perspective of of the major European players, especially Germany, Germany's been in the driver's seat in trying to uh, uh, freeze the conflict. Uh, we, We see a potential for actually reaching a compromise now, how lasting that compromise, how permanent that compromise is going to be, uh, is anybody's guess, and I'm not holding my breath. From the point of view of what Putin has achieved, it's in effect, in my view, legitimizing his upending of the European security order, so to speak. That is the principle that territorial borders are not to be violated by force, uh, that you cannot dictate to another country the way he, is, he has been doing that. Um, Bottom line, uh, I think Ukraine, Ukraine is looking at an uh, increasingly difficult or if not completely dismal prospect of actually shifting dramatically towards the West. I think you're looking at growing Russian influence in Ukraine, whether uh, short term or with some longer time, timeline here. And in effect, probably uh, as Putin's goal has always been, uh, maintaining, uh, consolidating the partition of the country that he's performed, that is, Crimea is non-negotiable. The Russians will not will not even consider that. And very likely those eastern provinces uh, may give rise to some further uh, partitioning of the country. I, I think this is uh, ultimately uh, not the finest moment for, for the Western powers. And you made a point about the ethnic claim that Putin is using as a card to pretty much take over parts of a country. How does the general Ukrainian feel about this? I mean, I'm sure there's some that ethnically do relate to Russia, but then there are others that relate to being a Ukrainian. Yeah, and this is this is the, uh, the real tragedy of Ukraine. And in fairness, you know, the Ukrainians have not, the Ukrainian governments, the succession of governments that Ukraine has had, have not used their their uh, you know over two decades of freedom and independence uh, to the greatest advantage. They they uh, bear a lot of responsibility for the kind of internal corruption that you've had in the country, for uh, the military weakness, and and for the overall uh, failure of government institutions. Um, but uh, there's no escaping the fact that there are really more like three Ukraines if you look at the regional divisions. You know the Western Ukraine which is much more uh, Western-looking. It's uh, historically been the center of Ukrainian nationalism, Ukrainian patriotism, uh, and, and a kind of distinct Ukrainian identity. The further uh, east you travel, you know, central Ukraine, and especially if you get to Donetsk, Luhansk, the, the eastern parts of the country, there is a very strong Russian ethnic element over there. Uh, so, indeed, Ukraine is a very diverse country in terms of... Uh, uh, of ethnicities, of uh, what languages people speak. I mean, uh, this is a Russian-speaking, the East is a Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, which doesn't change one very fundamental uh, fact here. 
Um, Ukraine is a sovereign state. All the people living in Ukraine are the citizens of one country. Uh, and uh, the last time I recall that we uh, kind of uh, looked the other way when another country tried to use the ethnic argument to dismember a state was in 1938 uh, in Czechoslovakia. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this lightly. I think the fact that you can bring to the table the argument uh, of your responsibility for protecting your ethnic brethren, if you will. I recall uh, in the interview that Putin just gave, I think, for Charlie Rose for 60 Minutes very recently uh, during his visit to the UN, just before that, um, he actually explicitly said this, and this was very chilling, that when the Soviet Empire broke up, these ethnic Russians were left on the other side of the Russian uh, Federation, and hence he, as the uh, president of Russia, has this responsibility to protect them uh, to look after their welfare. Um, we, cannot ima- we cannot fathom, at least I cannot imagine, uh, the, the uh, Western-derived international order with our, with our liberal institutions, with our principles of citizenship, with our commitment you know, to the rule of law, that we would be now reverting in Europe and in a region where, you know, just to remind your listeners... Uh, two world wars originated in Eastern Europe. Uh, Cold War originated over Eastern Europe. Um, that 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 we would be reverting to the principles of ethnicity, the principles of national identity, defined in these kinds of ethno-historical terms, and that this would have no consequences. This is this is where the greatest challenge, uh, in my view, uh, is being posed by by the resurgent Russia. It's not just that Putin is trying to build a sphere of privileged interest on the periphery of the Russian Federation, but that he is trying to change the way we interact with other countries and we change the, that we change the criteria of what we consider acceptable. And it's not happening just now only, by the way, in Ukraine. It happened in 2008 uh, also in uh, in Georgia, where he, uh, in effect, severed two provinces from a sovereign Georgian state. And if you look at what's happening now in, in Syria, I mean, Putin is moving very assertively, very almost brazenly into the area where the U.S. power is engaged, where the Western interests are clearly at stake, uh, making an argument that, that uh, we should get out of the way while he is trying to make himself into the indispensable player had an article in Politico titled Europe's Russia Denial, which we will post for our listeners underneath this talk so they can read it. And in it, you state that the risk of war in Europe has not been this high since the end of the Cold War. And I know you've alluded to it a bit just now, but I was wondering if we could elaborate on that. Yes, I I actually... uh Thing, things are, are getting uh, more and more problematic for Europe. Uh, we are at this uh, incredibly delicate intersection of, on the one hand, having enlarged the institutions uh, that define the West. I'm talking about the NATO alliance and the European Union. Um, in my view, the NATO enlargement and EU enlargement uh, after the Cold War have been uh, arguably the greatest success story uh, next to the uh, policy of containment post-World War II. I mean, in effect, the West has enlarged the area of, of democracy and free markets and stabilized the region that used to be historically considered the gray zone of European politics or the kind of Europe in between. I mean, if they, 
I remember that when, when I went into uh, Poland and the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at that time, 1990, right, right as communism was collapsing, and seeing the, the economic and political ruin uh, in the region, or my first visit to the Baltics, you know, uh, very early in the 1990s. And then when you travel in that, in that uh, region today, um, and you see the, the, the kind of really gigantic progress that has been made. This is a great success story of the West. Um, having said that, because NATO is now uh, operating in Central Europe, in the Baltic and in the Nordic area, we have security commitments to, to uh, the security and, and uh, freedom of, of our allies. What Putin has done by uh, launching this hybrid campaign in Ukraine, by severing and, and annexing Crimea, he has also been putting very, very direct pressure, not just on the Baltic allies. Uh, let me remind your listeners, you know, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania are, are tiny republics on the, on the, around the Baltic Sea. I mean, you're talking about states with populations of one and a half million to three and a half million, roughly, uh, for each one of them. So, you know, you could say um, you know, these are almost city-states. These are not countries that have the capability to defend themselves on their own, especially vis-a-vis the country the size of Russia. Uh, and yet they are now uh, under the umbrella of the NATO alliance, so they feel incredibly vulnerable uh, if you look at Russian military buildup uh, over the past, uh, over the past uh, you know, almost, uh, almost uh, five, six years. Russia is in the midst of a 10-year uh, military modernization program uh, that it undertook... Um, uh, around 2009, it's kind of halfway through it. It's a $700 billion commitment, which again, compared to the U.S. military budget, annual U.S. military budget, doesn't seem to be that impressive. But if you take it in the context of the kind of overall disarmament of Europe, uh, it has already completely redefined the balance of power uh, on the continent. The European defense spending has collapsed, with the exception of four or five states, maybe. Most of the Europeans are barely over 1% of their GDP. Um, like five or six years ago, um, the average per, per country defense spending as percentage of GDP was about 2.3%. Right now it's about 1.5, 1.4% and declining. So the Russian military buildup uh, and also the Russian military exercises have, have changed the way uh, uh, the, whole, the whole equation uh, in the region uh, appears. I will give you an example. I was actually in Europe uh, when that, that happened in December of, uh, of last year, uh, when the Russians pulled uh, into the Baltic Sea essentially all of their military assets from the region. Um, that was the, all of their naval assets. They moved tanks, they moved troops uh, from the Kaliningrad area, um, uh, their aircraft. Uh, and what they were doing, in effect, they were testing NATO's response time. I mean, if you look at the scope of Russian exercises, Western exercises in NATO in the region are very, very small in comparison. Uh, actually, the largest NATO exercise uh, will be conducted in, in Spain, uh, you know, Trident Juncture, it will be for about 25,000 people. The Russians have demonstrated that they can very quickly mobilize large numbers of troops along Europe's periphery. The scenario I worry about the most is not an all-out invasion by Russia. Uh, I, what I worry about the most is a repetition of a crisis that the Russians have, uh, you know, played in Ukraine. That is uh, creating an ethnic uh, conflict, an ethnic diaspora 
conflict inside the NATO perimeter. And a country that would, uh, you know, look like uh, pretty uh, vulnerable to that would be, you know, Estonia or possibly Latvia. Uh, there is a, a Russian diaspora in Estonia in, in the region of Narva, uh, where Putin could very easily create uh, turmoil, grab and hold that territory, of course, claiming all the way th- through it that he is not responsible for it, and present almost an insoluble dilemma for the alliance. Uh, because then, of course, the reaction of the Estonian government would be to ask for assistance under Article 5. It's very clear to me that most of the countries in the region from, you know, uh, from the Poles through the, the Norwegians even, I mean, the countries that feel vulnerable uh, to Russian pressure would uh, agree supporting that decision, calling for Article 5 response. Uh, very likely it would have deepening divisions in, in, in uh, Central Europe. So Germany most likely would try to seek uh, some sort of a diplomatic resolution to the crisis, um, you know, saying that we should not jump into a military response. And most likely when you travel to to the West, the French would say, well, the Mediterranean is really the priority. And the Portuguese might even say, where's Estonia? I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. My point is that Putin can create a crisis that can dismantle the alliance, uh, that he's already chipping away at NATO solidarity. And secondly, um, if you look at what the Russians have invested in their military, their armed forces today, in my estimation, are much better than they were, uh, you know, five or six years ago. And they're constantly training and practicing. I I look at the Ukrainian conflict, the war in Ukraine, and what the Russians have been doing around Ukraine during that time as essentially a series of military exercises. Uh, The Russians are very aggressive in the Baltic. Their their aircraft are flying sometimes without transponders turned on. Uh, When I mentioned that that one example of the Baltic, but but you you have, there's a very high risk that a miscalculation will lead to a confrontation and conflict. And in a sense, we're replicating this today in Syria. I mean, U.S. forces are uh, supporting uh, and, and flying missions in Syria uh, to support the forces that are trying to stop uh, the, the Assad government from, you know, from, from reconquering the territory and suppressing them. The Russians are now targeting those forces. Uh, actually, uh, if you think about it, the Russian uh, air power is attacking uh, the forces that the United States has trained and equipped and is supporting. That is an incredibly dangerous situation. Miscalculation, all-out confrontation. Um, so I, I unfortunately uh, feel that if you look at the balance of forces in Europe, the levels of Russian military readiness and training, um, their success in generating credible kind of limited, admittedly limited, but efficient and powerful conventional combat power. Um, and the Russians have also been able to uh, conduct a, a series of joint warfighting exercises across their military districts. Uh, I am concerned. Uh, the Russians are geostrategically assertive. Putin has demonstrated that he is less and less constrained uh, by U.S. and NATO, and by U.S. power and by NATO, uh, and the risk of, of miscalculation and conflict is high. You see right there, that's the question. NATO has given Putin, Russia, a lot of warnings and red lines, and yet they almost seem like threats that are not going to be acted on. And do you think Putin sees that and realizes that you know, he can still do what he wants to do without that much of a repercussion? I do. I actually think uh, it, because uh, we are at a point 
<clears throat> where um, if you look from from really post 9-11, if you look at U.S. foreign and security policy after 9-11, first is very forward-leaning uh, global war on terror. We went after the people who attacked us in 9-11, uh, you know, transformed our military, transformed our strategy. Um, and we uh, we have fought to very costly and, and uh, protracted campaigns. Uh, and both of them, Iraq and, and Afghanistan, are not going the way we would want them to go. I mean, if, if you follow the news recently, you know, city of Kunduz in Afghanistan that fell to the Taliban was is being contested right now. The military, the Afghan military, has moved in uh, again. And, and but but the trends are, in my view, uh, pretty clear. I mean, if with the declining U.S. military uh, involvement and ISAF having completed its mission, um, NATO NATO mission in Afghanistan. Uh, all of that NATO admission, all of that it points in the direction that very likely you will have the shrinking area of government controls and ultimately probably the collapse of, of the, of the uh, state as we have seen it. And, and Iraq is part of a larger now equation. I mean, the entire MENA region, Middle East and North Africa are on fire. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of optimism of, uh, among some of the analysts, which I did not share, by the way, uh, when the Arab Spring uh, occurred in the Middle East, the, the expectation that this will be transformative and that will bring about some form of democratic governance, all of that, I think, has, has to be set aside at, at present. And we're looking at um, a very different power configuration in the Middle East. Um, you see the resurgence of the Iranians. I mean, part, part of the narrative of, of Syria that, uh, that we're not paying enough attention to uh, is uh, that Iran has been very much involved in uh, in supporting the Shiites, Shiite fighters in in uh, in the region. Um, for example, in the Syrian theater, uh, I've seen various estimates um, in the media, but uh, between ten and fifteen thousand Shia fighters from two thousand and thirteen were brought in by the Iranians into the theater. Um, so um, you have this kind of interesting axis between Iran. Assad, Hezbollah, and uh, all of them are, are clearly aligned to reduce uh, and eliminate American interests in the region. The Russians, inserting themselves into it, clearly believe uh, that we will be reluctant to counter or to escalate or to, uh, uh, to quite frankly, become more proactive in the region. The, the, the public is tired of the war. That's clear. President Obama wants to uh, disengage in terms of the overall cost, wants to reduce the costs of American intervention. And as a result, Putin sees an opportunity. So uh, he, he hears rhetoric coming from our side, uh, which is, you know, condemning him very strong, calling him, I, I recall, I think it was the Germans or President Obama or Chancellor Merkel, uh, initially after Ukraine, saying he's behaving like a 19th century man in the 21st century uh, world. Uh, I can imagine how he reacts to this. He probably says so. Uh, um, I think Putin has a very traditional zero-sum game view uh, of international affairs. Uh, he uh, looks at uh, competition for influence and for power as a zero-sum game. He believes that uh, by moving into Syria, he is going to further reduce uh, American influence, not just in the region, but also, uh, quite frankly, in Europe, because he will see, he will, he's sending a very powerful message uh, that you must deal with Russia, you must talk to the Russians. Look at what already occurred, Chelsea, and this is what I find fascinating, because we're focusing on the possibility for a military conflict, you know, and, and kind of inadvertent 
confrontation between the United States and uh, uh, and Russia. But Putin has, in effect, already broken out of isolation. I mean, after Ukraine, especially after the shooting down uh, of the uh, civilian aircraft over its territory, killing you know Europeans and, and others who were on board, uh, there was a very strong move to impose sanctions, to ostracize him at meetings, to, to make sure Russia is a pariah state. Compare this to Putin in New York, Putin at the United Nations, Putin doing his, his uh, you know, television interview and just reveling in it. And right now, Putin operating uh, in Syria and essentially telling the world and telling the Europeans, the Europeans can't handle their uh, migration and refugee crisis. They have absolutely no uh, policy in place uh, as to how to respond. They, they are unable to move forward, as in my view, they have to to start uh, processing and housing people in the region. They, because the minute the, minute the, the waves get into Europe, uh, the whole new system kicks in. And, and uh, the net result of that will be uh, their services will be overpowered. The European Union structures like Schengen will probably implode and you'll have a rise of very uh, kind of uh, nationalistic right-wing uh, party movements in Europe pushing against that. So the Europeans need a solution in the Middle East in place to the migration problem, which means a solution to the war in Syria. Putin is grabbing that opportunity and and, uh, sending a very strong message to the Europeans. Look, you have to support me. You have to support Assad. He has to stay. And only then will I provide for the level of stability um, that will ensure that there is no more refugee flow crashing on your shores. That, again, I think, uh, from Putin's perspective, is a net win for him because it undermines uh, American influence and American power. He does not, I believe, take very seriously uh, the United States today when we issue warnings. And, and uh, I think it goes back to the original decision on Syria. You remember when President Obama spoke about uh, the red line on chemical weapons, um, and and we we threatened military action should uh, Assad do that. Uh, well, the line was crossed. Uh, we were initially going to respond, and then we essentially backed out into a deal that let the Russians back into the region. So, um, in that situation, where where our credibility with Putin is is low, and I think that's dangerous in and of itself because it it leads to miscalculation, and he will cross a line eventually where. Uh, there will be a forceful response and we'll all be worse off for it. But you're, you have a situation where he's driving the agenda. He's got escalation dominance in Ukraine. Uh, he has now stepped very forcefully into Syria. Our response is largely, well, you know, he will fail. This will be another Afghanistan for Russia. Well, maybe, uh, but maybe not. But if you, if you separate just the, the uh, actual military situation in Syria from what Putin is trying to achieve politically at the level of his strategy... He, he is getting a very, very substantial payoff uh, from having taken this bold step uh, in terms of how Russia is now perceived internationally, the level of influence it has, and how it can play on other, uh, on other playing fields with the Europeans, for example, when it comes to the future of Ukraine. You mentioned the economic sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. Have those had any positive effect on hampering Russia's ambitions? They have, they have clearly cut into uh, Putin's bottom line. I mean, uh, the Russians will be saying, of course, we don't care, we will survive. Uh, but no, the economic sanctions in combination with the, with the collapsing price of oil, and that's a separate conversation why we have this situation, uh, have uh, reduced substantially his ability 
to to continue to modernize, modernize the military, fund the, the government, and, and, and what have you. Having said that, uh, I, I was always very highly skeptical of uh, whether or not the sanctions would be enough to bring him around. Um, for the following reason. Uh, first of all, I am convinced that from the very beginning, Putin uh, has believed that the West would back down on the sanction sooner than the Russians themselves would, would actually uh, find them intolerable. I mean, he sees he, the whole propaganda machine that you see in Russian media, the destruction of, of you know, of, of illegally imported food on public televisions and, and these kinds of things. Uh, Putin operates on the assumption that because he has stoked this patriotic nationalistic fervor and his support is still extremely high in the country, then the Russians will stick with it by and large. He also has centralized the control of the state to an unprecedented degree if you compare it to where Russia was in, in the early transition period in the Yeltsin era. Uh, you can talk about an ideology almost. Karen Dawisha wrote a brilliant book on, on Russia, uh, you know, using the term of Putinism and, and, and essentially describing the Russian state as controlled by a, a very narrow group of, of people drawn from intelligence services, power ministries, and things like that. So Putin is very much, very firmly in the saddle, I would argue, uh, for the next several years. And what that means is, um, you know, having invested selectively in different sectors of the European economy, he can count on very powerful voices coming from Europe saying, we need to re-engage with Russia, we need to settle this. The German position throughout the crisis in Ukraine has been that there is no military solution. Notice that the Ukrainians have been asking for uh, weapons. They, they, uh, they, need their, uh, they need anti-air, they need anti-armor, uh, they need communications, and they need uh, the ability to improve their medical evacuation services. But the West has been very reluctant to provide those. We've provided very targeted, mostly defensive, and and largely non non uh, non kind of non critical uh, equipment to the Ukrainians. We've done some training now, but we have never uh, provided the kind of resources to the Ukrainian state that would raise the stakes substantially for Russia. Uh, the argument being, and a very reasonable argument, that if we were to uh, provide the Ukrainians with more weapons, more equipment. The Russians would reciprocate by raising the stakes at their end. The conflict would become more bloody and Ukraine would, would in the end, uh, lose anyway, which is probably a reasonable assumption. My, my argument, and I've written about this, is that it matters nonetheless how a nation loses a war. Even, even if, if you, in the end, are overmatched by the capabilities of your adversary, the political implications, the cost of a conflict, will have tremendous a tremendous impact on the post-war settlement. I mean, a classic example of that is little Finland, right, standing up to the Soviet Union during the Winter War. While Putin has not paid a very substantial price in terms of his military and his, and his political uh, support at home, he's paid a price in economic terms. But he is expecting, in my view, especially if he presents himself as a savior on the migration issue, if he can, if he can walk into the Middle East... Um, preserve preserve Assad, enter into a deal with the Ukrainians. As you know, uh, there, there, there have been several hundred Ukrainian troops now coming in into Syria. Um, and and if, so if Putin can create this, this uh, um, kind of, I wouldn't say s- stability, but can, can contain the conflict uh, and become almost indispensable to the Europeans and also uh, force the, uh, the Sunni states in the region to work with him, then, uh, then he will be able to extract concessions 
And that may include, remember, the sanctions are coming up for renewal, the easing of sanctions, the lifting of sanctions, uh, reinvestment in Russia. In a kind of different way, I sometimes think about the situation in a very different environment, obviously. But the early 70s, when the Russians were making a decision on whether or not they, they should do structural reforms in the Soviet system or, you know, opt for essentially financing from the outside, detente became a formula for the Russians to draw resources from the West. Um, I, you know, we have a situation of, of an assertive Russian state that is, in effect, crashing through a lot of the assumptions uh, about uh, its ability to leverage a relatively weak position for significant political gain. And, uh, you know, will, will he ultimately succeed? I don't know. But let me just add one more thing that's very important here. Assuming that the sanctions are biting, assuming that he is, uh, he is running out of resources, that he has to, uh, you know, constrain some of the spending on procurement and, and he has to tighten his belt. Um, this actually makes the current period, the next couple of years, more dangerous uh, than the kind of long-distance threat that Putin is, is posing. Because if you look at the relative lack of readiness in the defense arena in Europe, and if you look at the timeline that Putin has, his resources will be dwindling. Um, there is now re modernization and rearmament in a number of European countries. The Poles in particular have raised their defense spending to 2%. They're, they're a border country. They're investing in air missile defenses and whatnot. Um, and the same thing is happening in, in, other, in other countries, most of the other countries in the, in the Baltic Scandinavian region. Then, uh, then if Putin is to put pressure on Europe to extract concession, he should do it sooner rather than later. That brings me back to that original argument I made in the political piece that I think the risk of conflict is high. So do you think Russia's recent aggressive involvement in Syria, we have the airstrikes that started, I think it was September 30th was the first one. Um, and we've had all these reports that, as you mentioned, that Russia is maybe not targeting ISIS targets as they say they are, but rebel forces that are in opposition to Assad. Uh, this morning, I think there was a report, today is the 3rd of October, that said that Russia has struck now an ISIS target. Um, I don't know if that's just to alleviate the rumors going around on their part, but do you think Russia's involvement in Syria is a ploy to help potentially relieve some of the sanctions that have been put on them by coming in and saying, look, it, now we're playing our part, we're doing our part in this conflict? Uh, I don't think it's a ploy. I think it's a, it's a calculated uh, gamble. It's, a, it's part of Putin's strategic gestalt, if you will, for the lack of a better word. Um, Vladimir Putin, if you have to remember his, his, his background, where he came from. This was a, a young man who joined uh, the Soviet intelligence service, the KGB, at the time when uh, Soviet power was, was at its peak. And uh, his, his experience of working in Germany, his experience then of watching the decline and implosion of the Soviet state, then his experience in, uh, in, in St. Petersburg working uh, when he returns to Russia, all of that leads him to this one conclusion, which, which we, I don't think, paid enough attention to when he first uh, uttered it. Uh, Putin is on the record for saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest uh, tragedies uh, of the 20th century. Um, he sees himself, I think, uh, in a very different uh, strategic uh, vein than we think uh, of ourselves. Uh, he, he looks at Russia as 
uh, unfairly pushed out of the international system. He wants Russia to be treated as a great power. Um, and in fact, what, what I find fascinating, because if you look at, at the U.S. preoccupation, militarily speaking, over the past uh, you know, two decades, but especially post 9-11, we have predominantly concentrated on Asia Pacific, right? And, and, uh, and on the Middle East. Um, the European part of the equation, especially after NATO enlargement, led us to this, uh, these kinds of round statements of Europe whole and free and at peace, right? Europe as the done deal, so to speak. And Russia as a regional player at best, uh, but a country that can no longer uh, play in the same leagues as the rising you know, Chinese power and whatnot. Well, if you listen to what the U.S. military is saying, the senior military testifying uh, you know, before, before Congress, or if you listen to what a lot of analysts are saying right now, uh, in fact, uh, Russia is increasingly seen as the most immediate existential threat to the United States, in part because of the, its nuclear potential. I mean, let's let's be uh, let's be clear about this. Russia is is uh, clearly uh, the leading nuclear contender to the United States, and the second is because of its policies and and the overall. Uh, kind of uh, strategic design and how Russia has behaved. Let's keep one thing in mind. We, we have tried, we, we have indeed maybe not engaged with the Russians in the 1990s the way the Russians would have wanted to. I mean, uh, there were expectations at that time of Marshall Plan, of still treating Russia as a, as a co-equal superpower and whatnot. And our focus in our relations with Russia at that time was predominantly the residual nuclear weapons to make sure they were secured. Uh, and we're also focusing on the issues of how to resolve the Balkan conflicts, how to stabilize the region. You know, we made decisions on NATO enlargement, which I believe were the correct ones, which, by the way, the Russians always describe not in terms of enlargement. The word they use is NATO expansion. And they blame NATO enlargement for the animosity, claiming that, that NATO is this aggressive organization that's uh, that's uh, coming to Russia's border. But if you get into the, the uh, post-9-11 decade, you know, and the kind of efforts by especially the George W. Bush administration initially to work with uh, Putin. You know, I looked in Putin's eyes and I remember these, these kinds of journalistic uh, cliches that we've, that we've heard here and there uh, reported uh, about that. Um, or President Obama's reset in 2008. I mean, we've reached out to the Russians. Uh, we canceled the Bush-era uh, missile uh, deal, you know, uh, which was a major bone of contention. Um, they, We've reached the nuclear arms deals with the Russians. Um, I think the administration has tried to communicate to the Russians that we want to work with them and find a resolution. And we needed the Russians, especially when, when it came to our operations in Afghanistan for a variety of logistical reasons. So I tend to look at Putin uh, and Putin's Russia today uh, not as somehow reacting to what the West has done, but rather as driving policy. Uh, this is a geostrategically assertive, uh, in some areas, irredentist state right now that, that wants to return to great power politics. Um, it has invested uh, a lot of resources into its military uh, in the context of the overall balance in Europe and, uh, and uh, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's now positioned to project power in a limited way, but nonetheless... Um, the Russians are now talking about, now I don't know how, much, how many of those ships they're going to build, but they're talking about rebuilding their naval capability. 
Um, and it's a longer conversation of what types of ships they're looking at and what they're going to be doing. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, we need to be waking up to a situation uh, that we're not dealing with the return of the Cold War. We're actually dealing with something probably even more uh, dangerous in the near term because the, in the Cold War we had a set of rules that we developed over time, especially if you get into the 19, late 1960s, post, post-Cuban Missile Crisis and then the 70s and 80s. This is, this is largely uh, a, a situation uh, in which Putin can perform a sudden switch in policy uh, and sucker punches uh, in a way that we seem to be completely unprepared for. Who would have expected, uh, you know, a month or two months ago, that the Russians would fly combat missions in Syria, uh, pushing aside any American objections of this, and acting, you know, pretty brazenly, saying, "Get out of the way. Make sure you're not interfering with what we are doing." bring the talk to a conclusion, one question that has been in my mind watching Russia in the Ukraine, its interaction with Europe and now Syria, is can Russia really continue this all-out, bold forage ahead and continue all these activities in all these countries and, and pull itself in so many directions? In the long run, I mean, and again, in the long run, we're all dead as the cliche goes. In the long run, this is probably unsustainable. Uh, Putin is is committing the country um, to a series of policies and, and confrontations um, without the resources that he really needs to uh, to to deliver. Um, there are various estimations out there of how much uh, how much money he has to generate from, for example, energy sales. What the price of oil has to be, whether it has to be eighty dollars a barrel or hundred dollars a barrel for him to be to be gaining the kind of money that he needs to continue modernizing the armed forces and, and sustaining you know, the country. Um, but be that as it may, you know, if, if you look at the overall capabilities of Russia as it's in economic terms, population trends and all these things, no, Russia is not on a winning streak here. But having said that, Russia can create an incredible amount of disruption. Uh, and it is not the first time that a weaker player, but a determined weaker player in the global arena uh, can achieve quite a bit uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, to the overall balance of power. <clears throat> Remember that the U.S. presence um, in in a, in a global theater, so to speak. Uh, you know the role of the U.S. Navy, the role of the U.S. Uh, forward deployments in Europe, the kind of stability uh, and support for the open international liberal order that we've created, and the institutions that have been built uh, around that. And I'm not saying we did this out of sheer charity. I mean, this benefits the United States. It benefits democracies, uh, f- you know, maintaining freedom of navigation, free trade, overall security, um, and forward deployments. This is in our interest, but at the same time, it provides the public good of international security in many ways. Um, Putin is now challenging that. And if, if especially as, as his resources become depleted, but his commitments uh, uh, have been already made, uh, we're looking at an ever more volatile situation. Um, and I, you know, quite frankly, think the time has come for us to think seriously about a strategy that, A, recommits us to, uh, to NATO. We have, we have a uh, new ne- next NATO summit coming up in 2016 in Warsaw. Uh, and we need to think long and hard how we move from reassurance that we currently have in the region. We have a series of persistent rotational exercises. We're going to be prepositioning equipment. 
But in my view, we need to move into uh, reinforcement and deterrence. We need to think in terms of permanent presence um, of, of U.S. and NATO assets along the frontier in order to simply deter uh, the, the, the Russians from trying to uh, breach uh, beyond the red line. We need to think about uh, our longer-term uh, role in the Middle East. I mean, uh, if if we if these trends continue right now, uh, our traditional paths of influence uh, will be increasingly questioned. Uh, remember that we're looking not just at what's going on in Syria, the great humanitarian tragedy, but we're looking at our relationship with the, with Saudi Arabia. We're looking at our our security relationship with Israel. We're looking at a region that can potentially. Uh, explode uh, into into a, a genuine transatlantic crisis because whatever whatever is happening in the Middle East is impacting on the entire Mediterranean is bringing the Europeans into play, um, and Europe now has a third crisis and that's the last thing I want to bring up here. Europe is grappling with a third crisis in in a kind of very rapid series that we've seen. The first one is the Ukrainian uh, war, right, which which brings state on state violence back onto Europe's periphery and upends the whole security system uh, structure, the thinking about security in Europe. And the second one was the Eurozone crisis, which the Europeans still managed to kind of dodge by throwing money at it and then trying to bring about some institutional adaptation. Uh, And now you have the refugee migrant crisis, which the Europeans are simply not able to control. Uh, Thus far, the conversation has been about uh, resettlement, reaction. It's created tremendous strains within within the EU. And quite frankly, I wrote about this the other day, and I fear it may bring bring about the implosion of one of the greatest achievements of the EU project, which is the Schengen visa-free uh, zone in Europe. Uh, so, so Europe is inward looking. Europe needs re-engagement from us and American leadership in order to be, to be uh, kind of galvanized into a response to what's happening uh, now on two peripheries of Europe. It's in the Northeast, uh, Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East uh, and, and in the Mediterranean. Well, I know you're on a time restraint, so I want to thank you so much for coming on the show again and giving us your fantastic insight into this very messy situation. That's the best way to describe it. Yeah, thank you very much, Chelsea. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and I'm sure we'll continue this discussion in the future. I look forward to it. <laughs>